each other. Perfect. So that was my first completion on Super Bowl Sunday, by the way. Uh, let's go ahead and look at the next few verses, uh, starting verse 22. It says, The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, another name for Satan, and by the prince of demons. He cast out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so they're asking the question now of, uh, is he controlled by Satan or is he conquering Satan? See, down in verse 30, it says um, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That's a way for saying he's possessed. Uh, and even there, they were saying maybe he is Satan himself, controlled by him directly, not just one of his demons. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to dive into what's this whole world of demons and everything they're talking about. Uh, but for this, the question is, where does Jesus' authority and power come from? You see, the idea of casting out demons was not new in this culture. Uh, many uh, who were the religious leaders had ways and they would try to do it and had some success occasionally if you read history. But the ease it was Jesus came into the scene without their methods or thoughts and he spoke and these people who were possessed, who were out of their minds, it's like a shield went down over their face and rose up again and they were a whole new person. The struggles they had had were gone and the people were like, what on earth? And in some instances, we'll see the demons respond and be like, would acknowledge Jesus and who he is and his authority, and he would stop them. Because he knew that the, the quicker people uh, began to understand this, the sooner they would attack him and end his ministry time. And so he would try to slow down that tide. And yet the authority which he carried was beyond anything they'd ever seen. So something wasn't right, and they were right. Something isn't right. There had to be one of two conclusions. Either he, he's possessed, they thought, or he gave them the other option. He said, well, logically, if a kingdom is divided and fighting amongst themselves, you're more vulnerable. We know that throughout history. You're more vulnerable for outside attack. Your attention is inward. And if your own house is divided and there's betrayal, eventually you're going to crumble and fall. Or you're going to fall under a very extreme and evil dictator regime because they have to to control their own house. It just becomes more and more violent. And he's saying, listen, I'm going in and with ease I'm controlling the demons. Obviously, I have to have the authority over the greatest of all in that house. I have bound Satan. He is under my control. I am greater than him. I have more authority than him. I am stronger than the strong man that this world faces. I am greater than anything you will ever face. That's a good reminder for us, isn't it? Jesus is greater than anything you will ever face. He's stronger than any struggle you'll ever have. 
He conquered all of that on the cross. And he was beginning to demonstrate this authority that he came with. And so they were confused about who he is and angered about his authority. And they were accusing him of being controlled by Satan. But then we also see that there's some confusion about Jesus. And there's a question of, will you confess Jesus? Now comes some interesting verses. It says in uh, verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whoever blasphemes, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So to blaspheme, to speak against, to talk against. And I don't know if you grew up in Christian circles, but I've heard many people panic and wonder, is there a phrase I can say that's going to end my chances of being in heaven? What is this great sin that is unforgivable? I thought Jesus forgives all sins. And so this becomes an interesting question and confused uh, many people. It's very interesting why Jesus would even put it in um, at this point. You see, many um, people have wondered, what if I commit this sin? What if my child does this? And as we look at this, we need to understand a few things. First off, we believe our God is one God. And our God is one God, comprised of God the Father, the Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All one, working together for our salvation and our good. Each with a different role in our salvation. The role of the Holy Spirit, we understand um, from uh, John 15 through 17, and other passages in Scripture like 1 Peter tell us that the Holy Spirit witnesses and is the one that testifies to who Jesus Christ is. The Holy Spirit illuminates or helps us to understand the scriptures. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. The Holy Spirit empowers us to overcome sin when we've come to Jesus Christ alone for salvation and forgiveness. And so the Holy Spirit's role is to testify that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And after Jesus went to the cross, the Holy Spirit's role is to testify that the gospel is true. And so to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit is to go against the testimony of the Holy Spirit about who Jesus Christ is. And when we die, or when Christ returns, whatever happens first, we will stand before God. And he will ask us what we did with Jesus Christ, what we did with the gospel, what we did with God. And if our answer is, well, Jesus was a great person, one of many ways up that hill of faith. Or, you know, I lived a really good life. I don't know about Jesus. I, I heard about him, but I lived a good life. Or there may be some who said, no, I never believed that. I didn't even believe you existed until just right now. He's going to say, away from me for eternity. And that's when that judgment, and that's why it's an eternal sin. If you reject the gospel and you die and you're before God, there's an eternal punishment for that. And so rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit is an eternal sin. But here's the good news of the gospel. 
Until you take your last breath, until that person you're praying for that is hardened heart takes their last breath, there's an opportunity to respond. There's an opportunity for you to respond and to have a change of heart. Now, somebody who is fully declaring against God, going against God full board, it has a lot of barriers to overcome, but guess what? They can be overcome. The main question that we all must face and answer is, who is Jesus Christ? And that's the point of the Gospels, and Jesus brings it back to that time and time again. Who am I? What's my identity? How will you respond to my message? And the fact that I am the Son of God. I have authority not only over demons, but I have authority to forgive sins. How will we respond to Jesus Christ? And so there's only one choice on this earth. There are many that impact our lives, <laughs> many choices that impact our relationships. Only one choice that impacts your eternity. What will you do with Jesus Christ? What will you do with Jesus Christ? You see, here in this passage, the reactions to Jesus have been present throughout history, even up until today. Some people are angered and caustic and accusing. Others are, are confused about his identity, about his teaching. And then there are those who confess that Jesus is Lord and follow him. Those are the 12 he just selected early in this passage. We're beginning to understand that more and more. But you see, the challenge for us is this. More and more, we're going to be in the same category. The time of comfortable Christianity is coming to an end. We're unique in human history, aren't we? And I thank God for it. We're, we're unique that we were founded with Christian principles embedded in this country. And that's just facts of history. And we had a culture that for a long time just was comfortable with that biblical worldview and morals, right? And not everybody lived by them, and not everybody confessed Christ. Not everybody had the same motivation for keeping those. And the more we've gone away from that, the more we're going to see the pattern in Romans 1, the pattern throughout human history, that there will be more and more pushback against Christianity or living for Christ. And you see it. It's in the headlines. We are being called more and more crazy. What? And I don't blame them. At one sense, you will walk in here and you see us doing something we call communion or the Lord's Supper, and we say, Jesus, this represents his body and his blood. If you've not been exposed to anything with the Christian church, what would you think of that? It'd be kind of odd, isn't it? We have to admit we're a little bit weird in some of the things that we understand about the world, and yet that's going to move from just being weird to hostility. Pastor Larry Osborne says this, The cultural hostility we face today is nothing compared to the harsh persecution many Jesus followers have faced for 2,000 years and that many face still today around the world. In comparison, we have it easy. But no mistake, the die is cast. The question is not if the growing cultural hostility towards biblical morals and values will continue, but rather how quickly it will move along. 
He says election cycles, judicial appointments can speed up or slow down that process, but the lesson of history are irrefutable. He goes on to conclude that it will be increasingly difficult to preach or live out for believers a Jesus-centered life without sounding crazy or being called hateful or worse. Are we making a costly commitment <laughs> to follow Jesus Christ? So what do we do? Do we, we hide in the closet? <laughs> do we try and out-debate people? Do we fight in the streets? Do we concede to those who are caustic towards us? How do we begin to live out our faith? How does Christ give us a model and a ministry, an example to follow? What's well, amazing in the New Testament, we see tons of teaching about the practical areas of living, and uh, we see Jesus and his followers after him exhibit love, compassion, grace, and mercy. And Jesus did this perfectly. Worst to strive for that. But he also pursued righteousness, justice, and truth. He understood the main issue that those people who opposed him had. He could have gone around addressing, addressing every single sin that people struggled with, but what he did was he addressed the main issue, which is trusting in Jesus Christ. People will want to debate you on everything, but if you can bring it back to Christ, so let's deal with the issue of who you believe Christ is. That's the main issue we have to deal with in our life. And as we do that and we grow, it's going to take wisdom and prayer and coming alongside one another to figure out how to live out our faith because every circumstance is going to be different and challenging. And one time you're going to have to stand up and you may have to say, this is where I stand, and it may cost you a job. It may cost you a friend group at your high school or your junior high. There's going to be a cost to it, but you're going to have to make that decision. Sometimes it'll be verbal. Other times you can live out your faith and not have to um, put it in people's face. It won't be the time for that. And so because of our nation's history and where we were founded, um, we've been comfortable and as we do this, we need to bring it back in this culture shift to um, know what we need to do. We need to stand up for what's right. We've got to vote for what's right. <laughs> we've got to use the freedoms God's given us. Yet we've got to carry the gospel and have a commitment to sharing the gospel. It frustrates me when we're more committed to a cause than to the souls of the people we're battling against. We've got to have a heart for the souls of those around us. And Jesus always had that heart. And it made people wonder about his motivation or wonder who he is. So who do you say Jesus is? Just one question pursued. If you're honestly pursuing it, or you honestly challenge somebody to pursue it, it has changed lives. Many of you know the stories of atheists staunchly against God, set out to prove who Jesus is. And along the way, they discover he's not who they thought he was. He is Lord. He is Master. People of different religions or cultures or backgrounds or ethnicities who ask the question, who is Jesus, and pursue it, read the Gospels and just say, God, if you're there, reveal yourself to me, have had their lives changed. Investigating who Jesus is, don't take my word for it. There's a lot of confusion out there. Um, 
Some people just say, well, he's one way up the, the mountainside. Uh, he, he was a moral teacher, but we misunderstand him. Others take him and they twist him and they, they say, well, he was a god or became a god. That's what the Mormons say. They try and get as close to the truth as they can, but then one little twist of the gospel and you got it all wrong. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses would say he's the archangel Michael. And they get his identity confused. And so we need to understand who Jesus is and what he was all about. As we come back to our text here, he moves on from that and he says, it says this in verse uh, 31. So his mother and his brothers show up on the scene and they came and they were standing outside and they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. He answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now in the American culture, uh, Western culture, I read that and I say, how rude, <laughs> that's your mother. But if you've come out of a culture or you've been in a place where your family disowned you for following Jesus, attacked you, threatened to murder you, cut you off, and you read this, this is a verse of hope. You're not alone, he says. Anyone who follows me has a new family. You have new brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not alone in this journey. You're not alone in understanding who I am. You don't have to do it by yourself. There are other people who are willing to make this costly commitment. You see, Jesus is calling out and he's saying, you have a new gospel community to help you stay the course. And it is a gospel community because we're centered around the gospel. We're centered around who Christ is. And we looked at uh, some of these this morning of who we are in Christ in our class, but um, the Bible and the New Testament describes our new family in this way with one another statements. He says, pray for one another. You're a group who forgives one another, who serves one another. We build up one another. We encourage one another, comfort one another. And when you're accused, abused, spoke poorly of by the world or by co-workers or you lose that promotion because of your faith, we're there for one another. We can't do this alone. We can't be lone rangers. We can't figure out the wisdom how to handle these circumstances around us that many of you face. That's why we have our gospel communities, whether it's our women's group on Tuesdays or getting together for fellowship or some of you are meeting one-on-one. We've got to be able to talk and bounce these things off one another and share them and realize we're not alone in this. We have each other's backs. That's one of the things I love about our, our youth group. They go to all these different schools or homeschooled throughout the week, but they come together and share the things they're facing. They realize they're not alone. There are other kids who believe this. And on Friday night, we got three churches together. It was crazy, but good. Uh, and... Uh, just for those kids to know, you're not alone. <laughs> and uh, the guy who shared with us from uh, the Urban Peaks, the uh, rescue mission or the uh, shelter for 
uh, young adults and, and teens shared that's one of the key things they need to learn is that they're not alone. There are people who are there who are for them and love them and care for them. And uh, he was saying that from a Christian perspective. Um, we had a family in Texas, one of the missionaries, we ended up supporting G.W. and Amy Fuquay. They came and shared their story, and they uh, fell in love with a Muslim people group in Eastern Asia. But this people group is in closed countries throughout Asia. And they studied and, and prayed and uh, were building their family, had two young kids, and they just felt compelled to go, to go live amongst them and share the gospel in a country where you can't even open your Bible in public. You'd go on a work visa. And as they began to share this, some people were excited, but their closest family members said, you've lost your mind. You look at those precious kids. You want to do that to them? And they struggled, but even though they were getting pushed back and people weren't talking to them in their own family, they got on that plane and they left and they went. We prayed for them and, and the police have free reign in this country and they, um, I'm not saying it because we're online, but um, they would come and they could kick anybody out of the precinct or the apartment at any time. Visa, no, no warrant, pull your visa. One point they were told, you need to move. We're not going to let you lease here anymore. And they're all right. And uh, he learned to draw pictures of the gospel with his art um, and share pictures uh, so that he could connect with these people. And uh, they were starting to question and getting them to read the Bible. And then uh, they had some sickness. They had to come back on furlough, and, and their visa was yanked. And many people were telling him, well, praise God, you went there and you gave up everything, but, but now you can settle in, get comfortable here in America. Well, I just found out that it's on my mind a couple weeks ago. They got into another country. They're going to start again um, reaching this people group that's on their heart. Costly commitment, knowing what God has called them to do. I don't know what that looks like for you. Um, not all of us are called to go to that end, but it's costly for everybody in different ways. And so what's your next step? Remember, that's our 2019 thing. We're not going to come here on Sunday mornings and just be comfortable. We're going to say, Lord, what is it your Holy Spirit would convict me to do? Now, for some of you, it could be that next step is asking that question, who is Jesus? And you may give an intellectual answer about it, but then you need to look at your life and say, huh, what in my life evidences that I'm really committed to following Jesus? Is that overflowing? Have I really trusted him? Has that changed my life? If it hadn't changed your life at all, let's talk. <laughs> let's talk about what it is to follow Jesus Christ. Who are you in community with? Community can look different at different seasons in your life. Our community group starts up again next Sunday afternoon. You're welcome to join us. We have a community group on Wednesday nights. We have women's groups, men's groups. We can get you connected. But don't do it alone. Get in community. We're going to need it more and more and more as our culture shifts around us. How are you showing compassion while pointing people to Jesus? Not just what do you believe and what's right, but is there a compassionate heart behind it? 
In your circumstance, there may be people that are pushing against you or circumstances or decisions to make or frustration about choices your parents let you have or not have. But is there a compassionate heart, just as Jesus had at the heart of his ministry, this love that surpasses all understanding? Is that at the core of what you do? I'm just going to close this morning by reading to you from one of my top three favorite passages in the Bible. A reminder uh, for who we are. Uh, Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised again and is at the right hand of God. Now listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or put in your circumstance there? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through th- through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing, nothing can defeat us. Yet we often cower and we're afraid at what's going on around us and we're panicking. And yet you've bound the strong man. You've conquered. Our eternity is secure. Lord, let us live in that boldness. Let us step with confidence into the life you've called for us. And when we forget about it, let us cling to one another in community so we can remind ourselves of the gospel truth that nothing can separate us from your love. In Jesus' name, amen.